So the important thing from their perspective is a matter of technique and it's very effective is to never make it clear what constitutes an insult so that everybody just backs away as far as they can. It is the week of July 5th, and welcome to episode 87 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, NSI senior fellow Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with Dan Carell, NSI visiting fellow and former deputy undersecretary and senior advisor at the Department of Education. Dan recently wrote a backgrounder for NSI titled China's Influence in U.S. Higher Education, as well as a number of opinion pieces for NSI's blog, The Skiff. Dan, thanks for joining us. Lester, thanks so much. Really glad to be here. So what is the scope of China's involvement in American higher education? China has about, just to scope it, about a million students, a little less, studying outside of China at any given time. Just a little less than 400,000 um, are in American institutions. The, um, the numbers I'm going to talk about probably throughout this podcast will be pre-COVID. Right. So COVID, one of the things that makes it hard to analyze anything these days is everything I've just said and everything I will say has been muddied for the last 18 months because it's a little unclear what's going on. But those are numbers that were true before COVID, and we expect them to be roughly consistent going forward. It's not going to be a radical change in in the next year. So no sense yet of how uh, the coronas, coronavirus impact on higher education, a lot of Zoom classes, virtual classes, international students uh, in, the, in the U.S. not being able to get here, perhaps doing things remotely. No sense yet of how that's impacted uh, Chinese students and, and the Chinese government effort here. I think the basic incentives stay in place. There was a ton of pain and a lot of vibration, a lot of young people that got thrown sideways. And if you can imagine, it was difficult for students that were studying in their own country. What what a colossal mess it was for students that were um, that were studying here from China or or wherever, studying in Australia for China, et cetera. So it was a mess. Um, and I think there was a lot of unhappy folks in terms of the way things went. But the basic incentive and reason to study in the West, which varies um, for different uh, students and also varies from the you know kind of the Chinese national perspective, those those things are all still in place. And this, I think, this is going to continue as it has before. So, broadly speaking, pulling back, what are what are China's goals for its involvement in American higher education? I think. Um, Naturally, the, whenever you talk about what China's goals are, needless to say, it's, it's um, complex and it's a complex system over there. And so even if you were to say, like, what are the CCP's goals? Well, there's disagreement within it, et cetera. So I'll just caveat that up front and say, roughly, you have Chinese families who, on the one hand, will pretty consistently say, and this is really for undergraduates, and of the, let's call it for round numbers, you know, 400,000, it's less than that, it's like 380, let's say 400,000 students, maybe 250 of those or, or more are undergraduates. I think that the overall feeling there is a lot of Chinese families have the resources and the ability to get their kids out of the Chinese educational system, and they're not a big fan of the Chinese universities. The footnote on that is that in all likelihood, what happened was their, their child didn't get into one of the top, roughly you know nine or so top universities in China. And so at that point, it's let's get them out of town, let's get them out of the country. And so I think the objective there at some level is, you know, if you've had a bit of success um, as a family, if you're affluent, there are a variety of benefits to that, right? To put a bit of a foot outside the country, there's to get the Western education. It's a little less clear right now, or at least it has been across the last, say, five years, that that's 
a definitive advantage in the Chinese labor market, but it also gives you the possibility of staying, which many, many Chinese graduates do want to stay in the Western country they're in, US, Australia, wherever. Um, so that's one piece. I think when you start talking about, and I, when I should say that about um, eight or nine percent uh, I think it is, of a Chinese students uh, study with some kind of support from the Chinese government. So just to kind of roughly, roughly, 90% of Chinese students are here because their family and they want them to be either here in Australia or the UK. And then to a certain extent, you'll have a bit of government support um, on that. When you start talking about graduate students, um, then you can start talking more clearly about um, objectives broadly. And, you know, broad objective, I think, that would be agreed upon absolutely uh, in China is we want to build an intellectual foundation to be able to build our own university system to be as strong and then much stronger than what's in the West. So there's, there's no question about that, right? And you couldn't possibly do that without sending a whole lot of people abroad. If you roll the clock back several decades and say, okay, on what basis would China build a powerful university system after having laid waste to the whole, the whole thing during the Cultural Revolution? The answer is they needed to enroll a lot of people abroad, which they've done. And so I think that's one piece of it. Another piece of it would certainly be much more surgical, which is, um, and these are stories that some of the listeners may be familiar with, but where the PLA has been uh, very intentional um, about enrolling people with People's Liberation Army affiliations or experiences um, into programs that have <laughs> very certainly an engineering bent, to say the least, and, and in many cases have been you know, actively publishing and co-publishing with, in some cases, with Western authors on things that are very obviously military um, technologies. And so there is also the more uh, narrow objective of being able to solve certain problems that they are struggling to solve uh, back home and to get that done through foreign labs. So is there any kind of U.S. government effort to differentiate these kinds of Chinese students? In other words, the undergrad student at, you know, Berkeley or at the University of Iowa or at Harvard, who's there because their family cares about education. They want their kid to get access to the best of the best. They send them to the American university system. It's not a nefarious thing. And then that last category you talked about, the students placed here intentionally in specific programs by the People's Liberation Army. Are we differentiating those kinds of students and taking action to prevent bad things from happening? The first thing I'll say is if you roll a clock back even five years um, and without meaning to throw anybody under a bus for the reasons that I'll discuss in a minute. Uh, I think the answer was definitely not. <laughs> so you had some really preposterous uh, situations where, you know, very obviously military research was taking place with people who were very obviously affiliated with the PLA or, or whatever. And so you had that going on. I would say now, um, yes, there are a variety of efforts being made in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, and it's really, when you look at all the papers that have been written about this and the discussion that have taken place about this, I mean, they're all sort of copyright the last two to three years. Um, and there's great work, you know, great analysis has been done to sort of think through the problem of what we might call research security. Um, and, uh, and coming from Europe, coming from Australia, coming from other places, and then the United States. In the U.S., um, of course, we have a complex system. And to point out the obvious or the thing that everybody knows, but that is a little hard to process through the national security lens, education is absolutely local uh, and state level in the United States. It just is. And, um, and you know, the, I, I was at the U.S. Department of Education, and I, uh, I managed to, to be able to work on this because if you look at the org chart 
uh, there is absolutely not a place at the Department of Ed to deal with these kinds of things. And quite literally, I happened to be available one day when the thing popped up and I, I leapt across the table and grabbed it and said, I want to work on this thing. And so I was able to do it for, for the better part of two years. The truth is at the federal level, you could you have to sit down and kind of scratch your head to even start to figure out um, who all the different players are that would have a hand or a finger in this. Um, the FBI is really the, the organization, I would say, that has been working on it for some time because that would naturally happen. There is a, a group within state called Education and Cultural Affairs, and really they have the ownership over the visa stuff, right? There's F visas and J visas that would be pertinent to this stuff. And so they have the ability at the federal level to kind of uh, control the spigot, if you will, of any student coming in from outside the country. And so that is a naturally federal thing. But really everything else that's going on here, um, and it's universities, but it's also school districts. um, And I didn't talk about this in the background that I wrote, but I've written about it publicly. The Confucius Institute program, for example, has a K-12 branch that at one point, um, at least, Beijing said that they had 500 classrooms set up in the United States. That's a local thing. It's just really a matter of coming to a local school district, coming to a local private school in some cases and saying, hey, um, here's a free teacher and here's you know some really neat programming. And that was received pretty much as you might expect Americans would receive it for the last uh, 15 years or so, starting around 2005, which was, oh, great, free stuff. And they were off to the races. Tell us more about these Confucius Institutes. I've uh, just anecdotally uh, seen them on college and university campuses. What's, what are they and what's happening with them now? Yeah, I spent a, a, an inordinate amount of time um, working on, uh, I would say inordinate, I spent a lot of time working on Confucius Institutes. I have a view that I think is um, a little different than, than people, what people might expect. Um, uh, the Confucius program started in uh, about 2004 in China. Um, it is a global program. It's not targeted at the United States any more than anywhere else. The idea was to establish uh, uh, institutes that were focused on cultural programming and to some extent academic uh, programming that were rooted in universities around the world. The hope at the outset was to get into the best universities they could get into um, with an intention to spread a few hundred of them around. It turned out that um, for a variety of reasons, they had, at least by volume, a lot of success. And so they, they produced more Confucius Institutes around the world than I think they were expecting to. They actually had some staffing problems early on, like they couldn't staff the things fast enough. On the other hand, um, I think they ran into somewhat more resistance than they might have expected, at least in some countries, including the United States, um, where uh, when they approached you know, places like you know, Harvard, Yale, et cetera, the elite schools, and said, hey, here's something free, uh, they did not get a, an enthusiastic response. Uh, and so what you find in the United States is that there um, are still and have been a handful, a small handful of elite universities that hosted a Confucius Institute. Um, but really, the vast majority of schools would be, um, at best, sort of flagship state uh, institutions, um, but an awful lot of, you know, kind of smaller schools, small private schools you'd never heard of, you know, smaller state um, uh, schools that are not prominent. Um, and so the, 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 um, uh, the CCP was certainly willing to, to settle for that and continue to play the volume game. And, it, and I think at the peak, they got around 110 of these institutes in place. The, the contrariness of my view is that I think there's been a rallying cry on these things because they're visible. It, that you know they're the they're a den of of espionage and they're a threat, et cetera. My view is that they should never have been accepted. They should be closed. It's not complicated. But if you know, to go back to some 
so the scope conversation, there are roughly, I think, 70 or 80,000 graduate researchers from the People's Republic of China in STEM fields alone. I think it's more than 100,000 if you count everything. But if you just took STEM fields, so science, technology, and engineering, uh, you know, there's 70,000 in, in American universities and absolutely throughout all the elites, every Ivy League school, every school that we care about. If you were going to run an espionage operation, I, I don't think you'd probably channel it principally through the four liberal arts students that you sent over to do cultural exchange programming at, you know, Buffalo State or whatever, the Confucius Institute. So I don't regard the Confucius Institutes as, you know, principally a threat in terms of, of that stuff. Um, the story is more complicated than what we'll get into here. But um, uh, establishing a physical presence on a campus, which comes with a bit of money and a bit of resources, has a, a, a positive effect in terms of the relationship, but also a positive effect in terms of getting people to just shut up if they're inclined to criticize China. Uh, and I think that that is a pretty modest outcome, but one that they care about a lot at the CCP level. Um, they want other people to just keep their thoughts to themselves when it comes to criticizing China and, and especially on university campuses. And so um, to that extent, they had a bit of success with that most Confucius Institutes in the United States at this point um, have uh, have been closed. And then I think the next question is, um, are they really going away? Is the money just going to go somewhere else? Are the staff going to just go somewhere else? What will happen next? Um, I do think that there will be a next. And so um, we'll see what happens there. But for the moment, um, that particular program is in retreat. So Dan, as, as I recall from years ago, college students can be a little bit rebellious uh, and fight back against the power structure. How does how does the People's Republic of China monitor or uh, keep track of what its students, whether they've planted them or whether it's uh, a little less Machiavellian? How do they how do they track Chinese students in the United States? And is that a concern? It's very definitely a concern, uh, and I think something that again with the decentralized system uh, that we kind of run in the U.S. There isn't a there's nobody in charge of all these universities. Sure as heck isn't the U.S. Department of Education. I was there. If somebody was running the universities from there, I'm certainly not aware of it. Um, and so, you know, the best we could do was sort of write a letter to them, which we did, um, to, to sort of try and inform them. Uh, and then obviously they collaborate too with, you know, hopefully universities and certainly research universities should be in and in have a good working relationship with their local FBI field office. That's the kind of thing that, that you try and uh, cultivate. In terms of what the, the Chinese approach is, um, as I said, you know, call it 400,000 Chinese um, students, undergraduate and graduate um, at universities. Now, overall, I think the environment is pretty favorable towards the China, for the Chinese in that setting in the following sense. Um, while college students can be a pain, um, it's actually true that the vast majority of them are, even Americans, right, are just not out, you know, waving a flag or causing trouble or whatever on any given day. And so you're just at the get-go, you're only dealing with a minority of, of people who would be inclined to speak out. Um, if you're coming from mainland China, you know, you have family back there, you're surrounded at least by a few and very often by, by quite a few uh, of your countrymen uh, in, all, who are also enrolled at the University of Illinois or whatever. And, you know, it, the stakes are considerably higher for you to be saying anything and certainly not critical of your country. I'll also point out that it's, I think, human nature for people that, you know, when we travel abroad, that we're not terrifically inclined to be critical of our own country, right? We might complain about it amongst ourselves, but we're not going to go out and criticize it in public. And so I think overall, it's not that hard to take a bunch of students who, for the most part, are here to get a degree 
usually in something that we would regard as sort of useful, right? STEM, fields, engineering, sciences, et cetera. Not too many of these students come over to study the liberal arts, right? To think big thoughts. Um, they're over here because they want to get a degree that's going to have value and, and frankly, that's going to help them to support their parents uh, in the long run because their parents have just made a colossal investment in, in, uh, in their education. So there's that. Um, and then against that backdrop, there naturally arises, and you know, it's it's coordinated probably a little bit through the consulates and through other things. But there naturally arises uh, a thing called the Chinese Students and Scholars Association at any given school. It's just a student group, right? And like student groups, sometimes they're there. Maybe the next year it's not there, whatever. But it's it's a student group, and uh, the Chinese Students and Scholars Associations um, are are well known to consistently be in communication with the local consulates, the Chinese consulates, to get a little bit of you know just communication back and forth. Um, the CSSA is even if they didn't exist, um, frankly, the Chinese students have, have been briefed and because they all know that this is the deal, um, that they should be, you know, watching out for each other and making sure that they're all kind of staying on, on side, if you will. Uh, the CSSAs formalized that a little bit. And, you know, as you can imagine, you're a, a Chinese student studying abroad in wherever, Sydney, right? Or, you know, University of Chicago. When the CSSA has a little wine and cheese reception and you kind of go, it's just a it's, or even if you don't go, it's a reminder that, you know, you can never leave. And so um, that's kind of how it gets run. There certainly are cases, there's not that many, because there don't need to be very many, um, where, uh, where students' parents have been visited back home, in some cases the next day, after they make a comment on campus or possibly in class. Um, and, you know, you do that a few times. And the, the, the message gets around that if you had any inclination to say things that were uh, critical of, of China, it's just not worth your trouble. And so it's, it's very few Chinese students would, would do that, frankly. And so in the few instances where it happens, you, know, you tend to have a bit of a reaction, whether it's online, it's on Twitter, it's whatever, or it might in rare cases be the Chinese authorities that are having contact with their parents back home. What are American universities doing if they find out about something like that happening on their campus? That that seems uh, anathema to us on a number of levels. The idea that you know freedom of speech or freedom of thought would be squelched in a classroom at all, I think, is terrible. And then further, that it's happening from a foreign power seems uh, to just multiply the effect. So, what are what are our what are our universities? These bulwarks of you know the American ethos. What are they doing about it? There's definitely no playbook, right? When you when you you get hired as college president of some school, they don't hand you the the secret book that tells you how to deal with this situation. That's for sure. It's a think a very weird thing for American administrators to have to deal with. So a few things I'll say. One is I know from some interaction with schools and experiences that it's it's a very awkward situation, uh, and we can come back to this a little bit later. But it's awkward at least in part because because there is this um, richness of relationship with a bunch of Chinese students that are enrolled. They may be the ones whose free speech is being controlled, although very normally I would say that that's not a visible thing because they're, they're just preemptively censoring themselves across the board. And so you, you have a lot of revenue that's dependent upon China at some level. You probably have gifts and money that's coming in from sources in China that may be more or less associated with the government. So there's, there's that. And then you have this concern about free speech and possibly even the repression of your students' families or possibly the students themselves. And there are cases like that, right, where students fly back to China and because of things that they've done or said while in the United States or in Australia or other countries, they get, you know, 
disappeared or they have you know their passport taken away or they're told never to go back or whatever otherwise disciplined so you have those situations what do you do i mean you know one thing that has started to happen recently and i i know you know in terms of public reports what's available oxford princeton some other uh, schools have have uh, either as a, at the institutional level or at the level of certain uh, departments um, started allowing students to either take oral exams. And I've heard stories of students that have asked their professor if they can take an oral exam. In other words, they do not want to reduce anything to writing because if you'd reduce something to writing, at least now formally, there's two problems. One is the practical problem of, you know, if, if my classmates, if my other, other folks you know, find out, then I could have a real problem back home. Uh, but number two is, is formally, it, it's very often if you have any kind of a difficult opinion, uh, you'll be in violation of the Hong Kong national security law, which has extraterritorial provisions. And so, you know, if I were to say to you right now that I think Hong Kong should be democratic and, and possibly should secede from China, then I've just right here violated the Hong Kong national security law, right? And so students that are being asked to, you know, what we would regard in the West as take a normal, you know, political science exam or something, or if they're studying China in some way, you know, their answer to the exam question can be, a, can actually violate Chinese law. And so, there is a little bit of, well, can you take an oral exam? Can we allow you to, you know, hand things in with, a, you know, some professors are giving students numbers, you know, like code numbers so that they can, so that the whole class can hand in their, you know, their, uh, their exams that way. I mean, it, I wouldn't regard any of these as definitive solutions for like, how do we move forward? Because as I say, it's a mess and there's no clear way to do it. It's a little bit concerning that you'd have to have, but I think you do have to extend that to all students when probably the students that are most affected are just the ones that are, that have family connections back to the People's Republic of China. You, you mentioned something earlier I thought was interesting uh, that, that colleges may be becoming dependent on tuition or other gifts uh, associated with Chinese students. What's the, is there, are there any colleges or universities that are particularly vulnerable in that regard? Or is this a, this is just kind of broadly speaking, because there's so many tens of thousands of students, it really affects all campuses, at least a little bit. Or are there, are there some that maybe we should be a little more focused on? It's certainly concentrated. I don't think it's, you know, those, those 400,000 students, and I'll talk about them in two different categories. Let's imagine the quarter million undergraduates. They're not spread like peanut butter evenly across the American higher education landscape. There, there are, you know, in ones and twos, Chinese students probably in, in most American schools, but, but in terms of real concentrations of more than a dozen or whatever, up into the hundreds, in some cases, thousands, it, it really concentrates in certain institutions. You know, look, one thing I'll say about institutional budgets, whether it's a for-profit institution, whether it's a, whether it's a, you know, a university or whatever, is you don't have to drop two or 3% of your revenue from year A to year B in order to have everybody's you know, pretty stressed out at the executive level, right? You start, you're counting heads. And I know having sat on boards of colleges, like you, to you, every sort of 50,000 bucks there is like another staff member that needs to be fired. That's life in any institution and in higher ed, nobody likes that. And so relatively small amounts of money, once they've been given, when it's threatened that they could be taken away, relatively small amounts of money can be pretty powerful. So that's one point. Another point um, is a storyline in the Chronicle of Higher Education. I forget how many years ago it was in the last few. It uh, was, I think it was the University of Illinois CFO uh, bought an insurance policy on the possibility that, and this was pre-COVID, this is, you know, before whatever, on the possibility that some geopolitical thing might cause fewer Chinese students to enroll. And, you know, University of Illinois does actually, is one of those places with a concentration. So they do have several thousand Chinese undergraduates that are paying, you know, at a minimum out-of-state tuition. And the University of Illinois has the great misfortune of being located in, uh, well, 
Illinois. And so the state of Illinois, the state of, I, I see, I could, we could see, I could see the Wrigley field in the background. The state of Illinois is not, as you might know, flush right now with money. And so um, they were a little worried about, Hey, what happens if we have a reduction in enrollment of Chinese students? So when you have people's attention at that level where they're literally taking out insurance policies on the possibility that you'd have fewer of these students enrolling, you know, right, that they are considering a host of things, not just insurance as to how do we keep these people happy? How do we keep these people coming back? They're our biggest customer. I mentioned that we've got something like, um, you know, a quarter of a million, let's call it undergraduates in, in Australia, the number and, Listeners will probably know that Australia is a little less than 10% the size of the United States by population, by GDP. Australia has 160,000 total uh, mainland Chinese enrolled in their universities. That's, I think, uh, graduate and undergraduate. So let's just handicap it. They have 120,000 probably undergraduates enrolled in their universities. They have all the same considerations there, right? Paying significant tuition, just real cash flow stuff. Um, they're massively more exposed than we are from a operational and budgetary perspective. And there have been some pretty stark um, occurrences down there uh, in terms of universities very much siding against what we would regard as free speech on campus uh, in favor of the concerns and sensitivities of their uh, Chinese customers, if you will. Uh, and so I think that the concern in the U.S. is is similar in the in the sense of, you know, you, look, if you had, you know, 5,000 Canadians enrolled in your school, you'd still not want to insult them. That's just human nature. And I'm glad that we think that way. We, should, we shouldn't want to insult people. But, you know, so we're going to do that no matter what, right? It, but China really wants to not be insulted, if you will, right? They will take steps to suggest that you really shouldn't insult the Chinese Communist Party and the actions of China. And they will make it known that they have an awful lot of revenue flowing through the place, whether it's students or whether it's, you know, um, funding for graduate research or whether it's, you know, uh, contracts with your laboratories. They've got all of that stuff going on. Um, and so it ha- it has certainly the effect of putting everybody on um, on the lookout for hey let's not like let's not insult these people and there's there's plenty of stories of things that have happened here and there. The other play that's natural for China is is never to specify exactly what you're not allowed to say, and that there are, you know dozens of examples of that. That's just a standard part of the CCP playbook, because once you say, oh, it's okay to criticize this, but not that, then people will walk right up to the line. And so the important thing from their perspective is a matter of technique, and it's very effective, is to never make it clear what constitutes an insult so that everybody just backs away as far as they can, right? So that's a bit of the free speech context and the undergraduate context. And I think concerns, and, and to me, that really is one of the primary concerns. So you think about the undergraduates and the, the economics there, there are a few topics in the world right now more in need of attention than everything associated with China. And so, right, if the Canadians were trying to shut us up and prevent us from researching what was going on in Canada, we might be able to live with that, right? But it's not Canada, right? It's it's China that's trying to shut us up and prevent us from researching and writing about, et cetera. Dan, I think Canada is just trying to win a hockey game or two before they're totally humiliated by that team from Florida. I could be wrong. It's that's just a, that's an NHL joke. It's a sad. No, absolutely no. My childhood hero was Ken Dryden, 
uh, still is. He's, he's, I think he's still alive and kicking and doing well. He was the Montreal Canadiens goalie back in the heyday. So back when they were, when they were major league. Yep. Back when they were they were dominant. Well, there you go. Yes, teams with the very idea of being of being um, uh, beaten by a team from Florida is just terrifying. Dan, uh, let I'm me sure. let me let me ask you yep. about the kind of the other side of this: American students who go to China to study, whether it's for a few days or for a semester or a year or longer. What's the is there a similar thing happening on that side of the coin? I spent some time, and I, I, I will say, I didn't really end up spending time working on this, I spent a good deal of time really thinking about it and trying to do some research and understanding it. There are relatively a lot fewer Western students at all in China. There are, though, a few thousand American students that would be there more often for a semester or a year, less often for the degree. And um, there are the, and actually I should mention too, and perhaps the the more important thing in my mind is you also have uh, Western institutions, elites, predominantly, that have established campuses in China, right? My law school alma mater, University of Chicago, has got one in Hong Kong, which used to be less concerning. Now it's more. And then one, I believe it's in Shanghai on the mainland. And I, I actually did an interview, uh, sort of a campus event with the, uh, with the president of the University of Chicago a few months ago and just asked him, you know, this is, you're supposedly a, a bastion of free speech, right? This is the Chicago statement, the Chicago principles of free speech. What's going on? And, you know, his, what can he say, for starters? You're already there. You got a campus, you know. And so we just said, well, you know, there's laws in the different countries that we're in that we don't necessarily like, but they're laws. And so we follow them. I mean, what else are you going to say? Um, so I think there's, I think to me, um, there is a problem with American institutions having a presence there. Uh, because, again, nothing deserves attention more than what's going on in China and the decisions that they're making. And you certainly can't be doing that there and nobody would think for a minute that you really are free uh, to do that. I think for American students that are studying abroad there, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, there, there certainly there would be um, some concerns, I suppose, um, uh, on the one hand about, you know, the relationships that they develop and, and whether they're being um, kind of cultivated. On the other hand, um, we absolutely need to continue to uh, preserve linguistic and cultural competency of Americans in understanding Chinese culture and understanding Chinese you know, language, et cetera, in order to be effective in the work that we want to do, whether it's from a business perspective, from a national intelligence, national security perspective. So one of the you know, risks, I, I think, here of uh, as we sort of move down a certain path that it seems that we're on is we've got to figure out how to keep people excited about learning Mandarin and keep people interested in the country rather than saying, yeah, we're kind of done with this. We're not that interested in them anymore. And I think that would be destructive to, uh, to us. Tell, tell us the story uh, of the, the young person you met at a, at an, a camp up in rural, very rural Northern Minnesota. I was in I was in northern Minnesota uh, over the Fourth of July weekend and was uh, literally sitting around a campfire with a great young guys major, majoring in engineering at a uh, now at a kind of a state university and he just mentioned I think we got talking about places that you'd been and he was from sm- very small town Minnesota and um, he just happened to mention uh, oh yeah you know I went to Beijing for for a trip uh, during high school that was kind of the only time I've been out of the country. And so, I, of course, I asked the follow-up question, and, and it turned out that he had been, you know, studying uh, Mandarin for some years through his school, uh, through his high school, and uh, that is, and, and then I knew he, he was hazily um, 
recalled this, but I knew that, that what that is is uh, St. Cloud State University in Minnesota was one of uh, what used to be two uh, Confucius Institutes in the state of Minnesota, and then it established a network of Confucius classrooms, and that's the K-12 aspect of the program. And what they provide essentially is a free teacher to teach Mandarin in the schools. Um, And so this is not the first young person I've run across just randomly on a social basis who um, has been in a a Confucius classroom and gone up through the, the, uh, the, the system. Um, when you get into high school and uh, in that program, they provide you an opportunity to go to, to Beijing on, on what they call the Chinese Bridge um, Summer. And you've got kids actually coming from all over the world, right? Because again, the Confucius program is a global program. So from the, all different parts of the US and, and other places. And then you, you have a very guided 10-day tour. And so it includes uh, Beijing and it includes uh, usually a junket out to some part of the country, and they split the group up and they go to different places. Um, and so the the American students, and I'm sure probably the other foreign students, chafe a little bit at how very guided it is, and also kind of roll their eyes apparently a fair bit at how on message it is. But the way it works is that uh, they pay for the plane ticket, and then the uh, the Chinese government covers everything else, and so it's very much subsidized. Uh, and they bring teachers and principals and all this kind of stuff over there uh, as well. And it's just part of the you know it's part of the soft power and part of the building relationships, et cetera, uh, through that channel. What's the, uh, let's, let's pull back again here as we get towards the end of our time. What is, what is China's overall goal with its kind of massive role in our education system, higher education system? I think it's here where you'd really need to highlight that there's probably a good deal of disagreement inside, you know, within, within China. So let me just lay out some possibilities. One is um, you have an organic demand among people in China to to do this, to, to send their students or for the students to come uh, to Western universities. And so to some extent, you know, that is, that's a grassroots demand level thing. And the question is whether the government's ever going to try and inflect that or change it or reduce it or whatever. So I think that's an open question as to, you know, how much power does the CCP think it could really um, exert? Because on the other hand, there certainly are folks um, within the CCP, uh, I, I don't think there's any question about this, who would really like to say, okay, um, this might as well be the high watermark because we've developed enough capability to be bringing it back to continue to increase the the quality, the excellence of our universities. There is, of course, in China, there's a plan for everything, right? And there are extensive plans for building out what to us is just a stunning number of you know, thousands of universities there. But when you do the math on the population and et cetera, it's not an unreasonable number. So they've got several thousand universities to continue to build and to develop and to build the faculties. And so I think you probably also have a faction over there that says, look, we've gotten what we need to out of this exercise. Let's, let's refocus on building the quality of our own institutions by using the people uh, that have been developed uh, through foreign enrollment. And then the last thing I guess I'd say is, it's not as easy as that because, um, you know, not that many of the Chinese uh, students who have gotten a, especially the, a graduate degree uh, in the West are interested in immediately turning around and going home to become a professor or whatever in China. It has turned out to be harder than they thought to draw them back home and build that system. And so that's where we've landed. That's basically the reason why you've ended up with some of these uh, storylines that have become now familiar where somebody's being prosecuted for having spent nine months of the year at, you know, I don't know, some, some university in the United States. And then three months or two months of the year in the summer back in China, basically siphoning off intellectual property and and dumping it into the Chinese lab. The initial intention of that program, that Thousand Talents program, was to draw these people home full time. 
they found out that that wasn't so easy to do, that folks weren't necessarily interested in that. And so they came up with this hybrid approach that they followed pretty, pretty aggressively. Um, and, you know, so the Chinese, I think, would love, honestly, to decouple from their end from our world. But I'm not sure how feasible that's going to be for them. Grant, uh, what question have I failed to ask? And thanks so much for taking the time and sharing your your wisdom with us. And I really appreciated your your backgrounder and your recent pieces in the SCIF. I, I want to sort of flip it a little bit and see how you think U.S. universities can make the most of this opportunity to show our soft power and attract more of these um, Chinese students, not only to live, work, and stay in the United States, but to actually become Americans? It's a great question. It's an important question. Uh, I think it, I th- I think that that has to be a collaboration between the universities, um, you know, the State Department probably, and some and some other constituencies in terms of figuring out how to create a path, and then thinking hard about like where are the fields where we where we want to do that, where it benefits us, and because I think I think you're you're right, Grant, that you have a cultural thing that is a gravitational pull that's potentially more powerful than whatever state level decisions the CCP might be trying to make. And I think it's absolutely a piece of what we need to be thinking about is to say, well, okay, given, I mean, the desire of people, especially people of means in uh, China to have a child that attends Harvard is it's impossible to overstate how powerful that desire appears to be just based on observation, including Xi Jinping, right. Whose daughter went to Harvard. And so, um, there's something in that, right, which is that there's a tremendous desire at a basic human level for these institutions. And, you know, how can we use that as a way to sort of further our interests in most fundamentally free speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, that kind of stuff, the values that we, we care about so much and, and, that we're, and that ultimately are, I think, at stake in the contest here. Dan, this has been fantastic. Thanks for being on the podcast. Is there anything you want to mention uh, before we close? The one thing I omitted to mention was I, th- I think in some ways the most powerful tool that, the, that China has is a tool that every country has. It's the ability to deny visas to scholars who are studying China for any reason or no reason at all. And I think that the great difficulty there is, uh, as I've said repeatedly, nothing deserves attention uh, at a scholarly level more than China and its behavior. The difficulty is that if you want to be a scholar of China these days, uh, it's extraordinarily difficult. You essentially need to figure out how you can do your work, either by avoiding anything controversial so that you can continue to go to China, or figure out how you can do your work without ever going to China again in your life because you're going to be touching something controversial, in which case you're never going to get a visa. And I think that that's a real, I, you know, I, I don't know how you solve that. That just is. Fascinating. Dan, thanks for your time. Great conversation. Uh, let's do it again in a few months. Lester, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to have the conversation. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.